0: going to try this again we started a little while ago i'll be watching twitter fairly closely to see if anyone uh uh, tells us we still got a problem we reset everything at least i think we reset everything um other than the actual link to youtube right okay so we, we hopefully if that doesn't do it then something got fried um and that's not a that's not a good thing so uh, I'll keep an eye open on, uh, on Twitter here a little bit. And, uh, maybe somebody can tell us if, uh, if things sound okay, or if, uh, if we're, uh, still not the same link sounds good. Okay. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's important real quickly. Um, uh, and I started a timer so I can still, we can still get that approximately the right time. Um, just real quickly, uh, we will have myla hudson on on Monday join us uh for some enjoyable time at that. Yes, this is a new record week for us uh depending on how long we go today, eight and a half to nine hours of uh, dividing line webcasts this week um that's that's enough for any trucker uh on the road uh, I think personally uh but yeah we've been we've been covering some in depth stuff and I realize that's not for everybody, and I, I I get it. But we want to provide something that is uh, unique uh, that no one else is uh, providing, and um, so that's what we've been doing. Obviously, uh, what I just started talking about when we uh, got word that uh, stuff wasn't uh, wasn't working, uh, I had been looking at a topic, was going to be discussing a topic when everything was sort of taken over by the uh, the Wilson flowers uh, discussion, which has allowed us to do what I enjoy doing. I mean, you got to do what you enjoy doing and, and what you have some facility to do and um, church history and theology and apologetics. uh, We've been doing that for a long time now. And so That's what we've done, and it sort of pushed this other subject out of the way. Um, But I want to start off with this discussion today, um, and I want to try to do so in a way that will, again, be edifying to people, challenging, thought-provoking, useful in the long run, But this is a very, very, very difficult subject to address, and it is one that, in my opinion, uh, the vast majority of Christians who who have a position in this area, and almost everybody does, do so without ever having been challenged to think through the whys and wherefores. And as I mentioned, um, I forget, I didn't look up the date. um, But a a number of weeks ago, I think it was over a month ago, might have been longer. I I don't know. All of us have sort of lost track of time since February. Um, It may have been in February. Um, I reviewed a short video from Bart Ehrman where he you know it's one of these really fancy put stuff up on the screen you know really communicative type things short to the point bullet points type thing where he was talking about heaven and hell and i put up his various points and responded to some of the things that he was uh, that he was saying and at the end of that discussion of bart Ehrman. I then tacked on some thoughts from over the years, really going all the way back, I forget what year it was, when I did, well, I know I I spoke on this subject um, at Sovereign Grace Bible Church at a conference years ago on the subject of annihilationism and uh, conditionalism and that was after i had done a well it wasn't a formal debate so i i tried to be careful of the utilization of that term but a, a online discussion with two a, a british couple husband and wife um on the subject of conditionalism annihilationism unfortunately it is a very uh, varied field um you have a lot of different perspectives amongst people in that group and there's not a lot that they actually agree on um so you have to almost every person you're talking to is going to have their own spin on it as to exactly what that is supposed to mean but the idea that they were promoting um was fundamentally a rejection on their part on the unbelievable broadcast was pretty much a, a rejection on their part of the idea of eternal punishment. That punishment must be limited in time and hence would, well, again, it depends on who you talk to. I, I don't remember their conclusion to be honest with you. I've, I've never gone back and listened to the program, um, but some people have the idea Uh, that the only punishment is death. So, you're resurrected. A lot of them would not believe that there's a conscious existence after death. There is a resurrection, reestablishment of consciousness, judgment, and immediate annihilation. So, in that situation... You know, in our in our days, we utilize, and I and I think we should start changing this. Um, in the West, we tend to use Hitler as the embodiment of evil, but he was actually an amateur. Um, if you want. The embodiment of evil, you look at Stalin, you look at the killing fields, you look at Mao. Um, if, you really, if you want big league, multi-multi-multi-million murders type evil, Stalin's a good, good one to go for. So Stalin um, dies in this scenario. Uh basically ceases to exist, sleeps, does not experience, is not kept under punishment um, or some would say maybe he is again, there's all sorts of different perspectives here um so for some some he ceases to exist, basically, others he's under he's kept under punishment, as peter puts it, um, until the day of resurrection, at the resurrection. Judgment is, you know, he's not in Lamb's Book of Life, so judgment is pronounced upon him, and he is annihilated. There is, there, the only suffering, the only fulfillment of the Greek term basanismos would be the suffering of the penalty. There is no, even though he inflicted continuous long-term suffering upon millions of people. Starved millions of people to death. Tortured millions of people. He will never be tortured. He will never uh, suffer for the things he did. What he suffers is simply annihilation. Cessation of consciousness, gone. Others, so from that point, you can, you've got that perspective but then others would say no there is a period of um, suffering that is commensurate with the fulfillment of the law in reference to the amount of evil that person committed in their life so there is a period of suffering that would be commensurate with the evil that person did so obviously a person who dies young doesn't do as much evil over their lives, um, would have a shorter period of suffering, and then annihilated others' longer period of suffering, and then annihilated. So you've got that. That's the second group. First group is there's no suffering at all. Just death is the penalty. Um, Annihilation, gone. That perspective assumes that death and annihilation are pretty much the same thing. Then you've got others who would say... Uh, judgment is proclaimed, but Christ is going to reconcile all things, and so the universalist, or the inclusivist, or all those other groups that would have uh, post mortem opportunities of of repentance and and everything else, they have to be fit in somewhere into that paradigm as well, um, so that there is an opportunity. Either an opportunity for final redemption or then the final rejection and then annihilation. Uh, because what, is, what unites pretty much all of it together is there, there just simply cannot be a situation where a human being is, and this is their terminology, made immortal... Or even given eternal life, even that's certainly not the New Testament use of eternal life. Um, given eternal life, um, so as to be punished. So, what do you do there? How does that interface with the fulfillment of God's law? Um, how do you how do you deal with this? How how does how does that function? So, one of the issues um, that So so backing up a so what I was doing in responding to Ehrman is I was pointing out that in most of what Bart Ehrman said, um he was coming from a, a fully understandable position. And that is that in essence, there can't be a meaningful doctrine of heaven and hell, given that you don't have a divine revelation from God. There is no consistency between Old Testament, New Testament, between Old Testament authors and other Old Testament authors. There's no consistency between New Testament writers. Um, there is uh, inconsistency within Paul. Uh, you, know, you know, all the things that that Ehrman has attempted to establish and that the vast majority, as I sadly have to report to you over and over again, the vast majority of theological seminaries and the like uh, teach on a daily basis. I guess one of the only positive things come out of the pandemic is that um, that teaching has been interrupted a little bit in the in the leftist liberal uh, seminaries, but then again, the truth has been too. So anyway... Um, if you if you don't believe that Scripture is consistent with itself, you can't come up with a meaningful conclusion. You can't, you know, you just have to recognize that's the way things are going to be. So that's what I was addressing, is I was addressing the issue of where Bart Ehrman's going to be coming from in this book and why it reaches the conclusions that it that it that it reaches and then at the end i added on a uh, exhortation to believers to think through to to have a theology that's something more than what you picked up from some firebrand preacher once or from watching movies because the reality is most in my opinion, most Western Christians have a doctrine of heaven and hell that was never derived from any meaningful interpretation of scripture. It was derived from movies and stories and sermon illustrations, and in many ways is more connected to the viewpoints of ancient Greeks. Um... The medieval period in Roman Catholicism uh, than it is, than it could ever be defended in a meaningful fashion from the pages of Scripture. Because much of what we have to affirm in regards to judgment and to the nature of the eschaton and mankind's disposition therein has to be derived from our soteriology. And there's a whole lot of bad soteriology out there right now. So, it's not surprising if most of your people, if most of your people have a an emotionally based concept of the cross and atonement, then you're going to have an emotionally based concept of the final judgment and punishment, too. Um... So over the years, I have repeatedly said, it's not that I've made it a big issue, but I have repeatedly said that this is an extremely difficult area and that um, it requires serious contemplation rather than just simply embracing a tradition. I've said that many times. So at the end of the program, I put out some thoughts specifically in regards to the objection that you can't have eternal punishment based upon temporal sin. That is, uh, it, it, I can't tell you how many people over the years that I have heard who abandoned a traditional understanding of heaven and hell— and the concept of an eternal separation from God that involves, the Greek term is basanismos, torment, Um, they've abandoned that because they come to the conclusion it is fundamentally unjust. It just simply cannot be squared. You, You can't have 60 years of evil resulting in 60 million years of punishment so the normal response by the way to people on that on that subject is but it was God's honor and God's law that was broken and since there is since his dignity and the value of his law is infinite then the punishment has to fit the crime now I think there is validity in discussing that. I just don't think the vast majority of evangelicals have a theology that's significantly theocentric enough to substantiate accepting and believing that and living on the basis of that. I just don't. I, I'm, I, I wish I could say otherwise, but the, the fact of the matter is so much of evangelicalism is so man-centered and has such a low view of God's law— that to turn around and say, yeah, but the the worth of his law that <laughs> you don't even I'm sorry, but if you've never even read it, how can you say it's worth that much? I <laughs> just have to be honest at that point. Um and this and the same thing with, you know, God's holiness and and it's sounds great and evidently a lot of folks go, Yeah, that's good enough for me. But I'm just not sure that's really what people are actually actually saying so that's what a lot of people say is it's it's an it was an infinite cost and of course you can make the argument christ had to pay an infinite price but then you go well why was why was the price paid by christ infinite um because his he, he was only he gave his life voluntarily he did not cease to exist A lot of these conditionalist, annihilationist folks end up being into the non, you know, soul sleep, you know, non existence type stuff. Um, But again, there's all sorts of division even amongst the folks that promote this stuff uh, as to exactly where they land on all that. But um, it was only one life that was given, it wasn't an infinite number of lives that were given. And so, What is said was, but he was the God-man. And so as the God-man, the giving of his life has infinite value. Um, And you can start seeing where atonement and this subject start meeting up when you're finally pushed to think through these things. But again, over the years, I've repeatedly said we, we are not comfortable having our theology of punishment and our theology of atonement and our theology of evangelism, for example, forced into close connection to one another. Uh, because you start going, oh, I'm not sure, sir, about that, and oh, what about that? So, the argument that I made back on Unbelievable and have since then was primarily against this argument on the part of people who would say punishment cannot be eternal, but still believe that punishment is appropriate and that punishment would involve something more than mere annihilation. So if you, if you adopt the idea that the punishment is annihilation then I really wasn't addressing that particular argument. I, to be, be honest with you, I have a lot more respect for the people who recognize that there must be that, that letting Stalin live as long as he lived, torturing millions of people on purpose, knowingly, and then he dies of a heart attack, Next thing he knows, he's staying in judgment, and next thing he knows, he knows nothing. He's gone. He got it easy. His victims did not, but he gets it real easy. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, that you know, if you can consider that to be justice, well, okay. Uh, and I wasn't arguing. That particular point, I wasn't arguing against that position. Um, I have much more respect for the person who says no. There, obviously, there 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 has to be an appropriate um, punishment in light of the evil that was done. Instant uh, non-existence for people who caused others to suffer is not punishment. So that's what I was responding to, and my argument had to do with why do we assume that the person who dies ceases to sin? In other words, when we think about death, we assume that sin ends when you take your last breath. But if you believe in the spiritual nature of man... If you look at something like Luke chapter 16, you see that while the spiritual nature of man could be such that he all of a sudden realizes the foolishness of his physical life as the rich man did, that is not going to change that individual outside of adding to their knowledge. There will be knowledge gained in death. Once you're dead, you're not going to be confused as to which religion is right. You know, you're not going to be sitting around going, well, you know, uh, the Mormons say this, and the Jehovah's Witnesses say this, and the Manichees, well, they said that. <laughs> and you got the Buddhists, and you've got the Muslims, and you got... No, you're not going to have any of that. There's going to be perfect clarity as to what the truth is, but there seems to be an assumption on the part of many people that uh, what happens is instant sanctification. As soon as you die, even the lost, even the unregenerate are sanctified to where they stop sinning. Well, may I point out, as long as you are not in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're in rebellion. And so the person who dies is still in rebellion. They're not in right relationship to God. So, my whole point was to say, if that's the case, then that relationship remains ruptured. And what's more is now the restraint that has been exercised in withholding the evil of man is removed. And I suggested, in light of that, that the basanismas, the... Suffering, the torment is separation from envy, anything that you can express your hatred toward God on, except for yourself. You're the only thing left. There's going to be no parties in hell. Uh, Gary Larson has lots and lots of funny. Uh, Farside cartoons, you know, he's got the one where, you know, you've got terrorists and mass murderers. And then the devil's putting people into the last room, which is for people who drove slowly in the fast lane. Um, but there's always lots of people around. And there's lots of company. Um, that's not the way it's going to be. Not that, I, not, not that Gary was really attempting to be a theological... Guidepost there, but anyway, that's not the way it's going to be you you are alone, you're consumed with your hatred, and that's why I suggested I don't think God has to expend whatever however you define energy for God uh having uh, demons chasing people around through the pitch black with pitchforks i no need for any of that. So, I, I presented this idea, and I said, at that time, I said, someone's going to respond to this, and I was referring to Chris Date. And we have, uh, Chris Date did a, um, a debate with um, Leighton Flowers a while back, I think it was, was it on Unbelievable? I don't remember. Um, no, I don't think it was. Well, maybe, I don't know. Um, he has put stuff out over the number of years. I remember it was probably, what, two thousand six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. I don't remember now. Um, when... It, was around, it was around 2007. I actually looked it up when I was on his program, I think, um, doing a debate with a Unitarian. It was a very pitched debate uh, with a Unitarian on passages like Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 and the key texts on the deity of Christ. And then I think right around that time is when I heard... Uh, a webcast he was doing where he had run into Fudge's material. Now, if you're not familiar with who Fudge is, uh, the biggest name in the conditionalist annihilationist camp. And I could tell by what I was listening to um, that this was this was the direction he was going. Not, most of the time, once you hear somebody talking about something... um. Yeah. So okay, my Yeah, my phone or my my watch. That's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, I feel like Dick Tracy here. Uh Al- Algo Algo now has access to my watch. Uh that's Yes. Well, so Algo just sent me a link to uh the unbelievable broadcast with that. So there you go. So there's there's the confirmation. That's pretty fast. Isn't that cool? That's 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 pretty wild. Um that, that you can do stuff like that. Um Anyway, so I could tell that that were that, that Chris Tate was going that direction. Well, he did. I think a couple of years later, he debated someone from our chat channel, Razor's Kiss, on uh, this, the nature of hell or punishment or something along those lines. Um, the funny thing is here, as I'm thinking about this, I'm remembering where I was writing when I was listening to these things. So uh, for some reason, the w- webcast where he started to talk about uh, fudge and stuff like that and had, I think he had him on at some point. Um, I was riding on the canal over near 7th Street and they hadn't put the underpass in yet, so it was, quite, it was a while back. And then I was over on 32nd Street uh, over toward the mountains there when I was listening to the debate with uh, Razor's Kiss and stuff like that. So it's just how things work in my mind. Is remember where those things were. Um, so The situation that developed was, um, I said, someone's going to talk about this. And I was right. And so I downloaded the video response, and I started listening to it. And he was talking about how disappointed he was, because he's such a big fan, that I had never responded to stuff that he had said before. And he made reference to a podcast. And so I wrote down the number of the podcast, uh, tracked it down, and basically what he was doing was reading an article that he had published. So I listened to him reading the article. I downloaded the article in, in written form as well. Uh, and uh so I had just listened to that and found it interesting. Um, you know, there were a lot of things to respond to in that, that I, that I felt were, were highly questionable, but it was interesting, but it didn't, what I didn't understand is what he was saying is we've responded to all your stuff before. Why we've refuted you before. Why are you, why are you not dealing with this? And I'm like, yeah, but. There wasn't really anything in this article that I found overly challenging, and it certainly wasn't addressing what I had specifically stated. And so I felt like I had listened to that before I then listened. So I went back, got that, and had just gotten to the point where I was getting ready to do the rest of it when the um, Wilson stuff hit and the coronavirus stuff, stuff hit and so on and so forth. So I've listened to the rest of the video, and so this is sort of a personal message to Chris Date, but hopefully the previous discussion has been challenging you to think through. Um, just just a couple of weird things is it? It started off with a bunch of uh, material from our chat channel. Someone had uh, come into our chat channel. I actually remember this. I think I was in on this computer. Um, and had said something about it, and then somebody, who knows who, had passed that stuff along to Chris State. Now, if, you, if we still had a chat channel, we do not, that chat channel doesn't exist anymore. Um, if, we, uh, if we did, uh, whoever did that would have been banned, because that's called trolling. Um, and I'll have to admit that uh, using stuff from sources like that, where you're chatting with people... Um, did not in any way, shape, or form uh, encourage me as to the the benefit of future interactions. Um, that's just that's class A trolling right there. It really is. Um, so leaving that aside, uh, then what happened is he started working through the stuff that I said about Ermen. But here's the problem. All the way through, he assumed I was talking about him rather than responding to Bart Ehrman. And so he, he responding to James White when I wasn't arguing against his position. I mean, for example, at one point I made reference to his saying, Old Testament and Jesus, because there are clearly references to heaven and hell outside of the Gospels. And so he, oh, but let's let's start looking at all those and jumps off into those. And all I was saying was, Ehrman is choosing his words because of what kind of presentation he's going to make. And I know his presentation is going to be an agnostic's presentation, an unbeliever's presentation. That's not going to be Chris Date's presentation. So to assume and read into what I'm saying about Bart Ehrman and go, oh, but he's wrong about this and he's wrong about that was like... That's pathetic. <laughs> what are you? What are you doing? And then uh, I mentioned John, and so he he dives into the Gospel of John, and is is, and none of this had anything to do with my responding to a quote unquote evangelical conditionalist. I'm responding to Bart Ehrman. This guy's listened to a lot of my debates. Probably not all of them, but a lot of them. I know my opponents. I'm going to respond to them in the context they're in. So I wouldn't do that knowing that Chris professes a high view of scripture. So so I was sitting here going, how desperate are you uh, to engage me to pretend to be responding to me and then reading yourself into everything I'm saying about Bart Ehrman? And the result was so much of what was said just didn't had nothing to do with what I had actually been saying other uh, than you know see C- see followers, I can go after the big guy I was, it was really disappointing it really was um now there were some troubling things that were said in there um, i i didn't queue it up, but if you want to go look it, at at forty two and a half minutes in, I was really surprised when uh, Chris was looking at the the gospel of John and he looked at the text that refers to um and they shall surely not die uh from um John 8 as i recall and he was saying yeah that's just um uh that's a you know that, that that's just a that, that doesn't mean forever, et cetera et cetera and i i, I was running as I was listening uh, to this, and i couldn't help but but think of jesus' words of john 10 28, and I will give to them eternal life kai ume Apollonta, iceton iona. What, what? Oh, I, you're oh, okay. You're you're stirring. You're stirring something. Okay, I'm sitting there going, what are you? What in the world are you trying to signal me? And you're off drinking stuff, and I I don't okay. Um, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Now, literally, it's Ume, with a subjunctive. Istin iona. H- how? How else could it be expressed? Uh, It was really concerning to me that there's such an emphasis. And in fact, I would say the the, the primary um, concept I came away from the video, listening to the video with, was imbalance. Such an overemphasis in the one area, because this has become the big area. I mean, if, if you can hear yourself and everything I'm saying about a secular agnostic guy, this is, you know, not a lot of, imba- of balance there. But it does seem that to say, well, that doesn't mean eternally, has to fundamentally then bring into question the promise of eternal life as well. Be- because you have Ume, they shall never perish. I mean, that's the promise positively that defines what eternal life is in John 10, 28. So I was really surprised when I, when I heard that. It's like, there's obviously more here that, that I'm not seeing. Because what I discovered, I think, is that eventually, um, Chris got around to the argument that I presented at the end of the review of Ehrman about sinning and the fact that you are not sanctified when you die and if I understood what he was saying it was it was not the clearest explanation but if I understand what he was saying he doesn't he believes that the punishment is simply death, cessation of existence, that there is no punishment so it's so it's not his argument that eternal punishment is unjust based upon um, the injustice of the amount of times issue that I was talking about before, which is one of the most common forms of argumentation. And so it, it sounded to me like what he was saying was, no, um, there's judgment. And then the only punishment is cessation of existence, annihilation. Now, in the process, um, well, and and my, my response to that would be that really, I think, is significantly more problematic than the person who recognizes that that creates an injustice in and of itself um but i if i'm understanding the, his position over against others and i may have i know i don't know if he's changed his position over the years um i don't know if there's been development i don't know i'm sorry following that particular saga has not been my highest priority i apologize but um i had understood that he did believe that there would be punishment, but that it would be limited in duration, followed by annihilation. If I understood his response to me, that's not what he believes. Um, Okay, whatever. But what was interesting was the things that were ascribed to me, basically what he's saying is that uh, what I believe is that the unrighteous dead are given eternal life that they are resurrected and made immortal. So you can see that there is a um, issue here about, one well, of the key issues is, when God creates man in his image, is man's spirit intended to cease existence together with his body? So there is a lot of anthropological Um, discussion here as to what the nature of man is. Um, And in my experience, don't know if this is where he's coming from, but in my experience, you have people who take the limited categories of Old Testament Revelation, force them on the broader categories of New Testament Revelation so that indications such as uh, that where I am, they may be with me also. Uh, is better, which you know, which is better for me to remain with you or to be to to die and be present with the Lord. The idea of being present with the Lord, on in Paul's perspective, uh, the activity of the martyred souls. There's obviously more in the New Testament than there is in the Old Testament when it comes to this issue. And in fact, most of what you have in the Old Testament scattered allusions that can only be Um, uh, given much flesh once we look at New Testament revelation on the subject. Uh, But even then, there is significantly less biblical revelation on these subjects than the broad assumptions of most people assume there is. Or there's a whole lot more Broad assumptions that people have that doesn't actually have a biblical foundation to it. Let's put it that way. So, um, so what, what about this idea that what we're actually saying, so you need to understand what they're saying. What they're actually saying is if you believe, if you do not believe in conditionalism, if you not believe that man's continued existence is conditioned upon the continued sus- sustaining of his existence by god's power and so it's conditional upon what god is doing in regards to maintaining or not maintaining the existence of said person then their argument is that everybody gets turned alive everybody gets turned alive it's just a matter of where you get to do it and what you're going to be doing while you're doing it okay I didn't refresh my water so all I've got's my apple cider vinegar which um eh, you get to go do whatever you want to do over there. I I get you. I see you. See you folks, you just don't see what I have to deal with. You just you don't see it. And and I and I understand that's okay. Anyway, um so how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the accusation um that what we really believe is that everybody gets eternal life. Well, you immediately see that that kind of accusation or statement is utilizing different meanings for what eternal life means. Because we have eternal life right now as believers in Christ, and the un- unbelievers do not, but they're still alive. And so are we. So there's obviously a different category, isn't there? John chapter 5, you've passed out of death into life, right? Right? Eternal life is something we possess right now. So, is what we possess right now ever going to be given to the unregenerate? Well, of course not. So, to say that I believe that they will be given eternal life is to obviously change the meaning of the phraseology to communicate something that misrepresents what I would believe. They're not given eternal life, but they are placed under the judgment of of God in the same condition. Well, they're under the judgment of God right now, right? The wrath of God is being revealed. And then the, the Petrine passages, that they are kept under punishment until the day of judgment. And then at the day of judgment, you have the concept of basanismos, torment. So, I'm not in any... So, so there is no meaningful fashion whereby you can describe simply the continued existence in rebellion from separation from absent of the life of God, of an image bearer, as eternal life. That is that is using it to mean one thing over here, then using the exact same phrase over here, and playing on those two different contexts in a very invalid way. And I did not appreciate that. For anybody to sit there and say James White is saying that the unregenerate are given eternal life is to. You got stay away from the lighter. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna bring it in here someday. I'm gonna remember. I'm gonna remember. I would just suggest to you that if I have to keep dealing with Ken Wilson, you had better get a fire extinguisher right over. You know where you got one close. Good. All right. You, is it charged up? Most of ours... Check your fire extinguisher, folks. Most of them aren't even charged up anymore. I hate to tell you that. You've just seen it there. It's been sitting in your kitchen for 15 years. It's dead. <laughs> when you need it, you ain't going to have it. So check it Check it out. Uh, anyway, uh, that was misrepresentational. Um, obviously, the unregenerate dead do not have eternal life. The question is, was the nature of the punishment, and then what is the endurance, period of, uh, of endurance is is the issue. And so I said, and I think some people, I you know, I didn't get, maybe you did, but you didn't say anything about it to me. I didn't, I did not get any feedback from that program at all. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't. There was, from our folks, it was just sort of like, I don't like that topic. And and I get that. I get that. Most people don't. You know, when I, I, I get it. I, I fully understand it. it. That's why I've said I don't want to be the apologist for hell. It is a bummer of a topic to have to deal with, but you do have to deal with it. And I said in that program, I said, this is one subject where I wish I could hold a different position. I really do. Yeah. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is not a topic where I'm sitting here going, yeah, um, I'm not going to listen to any arguments against my position because I really like holding this position. And it, it makes my life easier. No. No. the the reality is it would be easier uh, because, oh, and then this is another thing. (laughs) Chris, 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 Chris. Um, At one point, I made the observation, and it is an accurate observation, that to hold to a concept of, any type of traditional concept of eternal punishment is to be in the minority in New Testament scholarship in the world today. And that's true. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that all those people hold the same views. It's just that to actually believe that the New Testament is consistent enough to actually present a doctrine of last things that you would actually live in light of um, is extremely the minority position. Extremely the minority position. So what Chris does is he takes offense at that and say, I believe in inerrancy. I wasn't talking about you. You're a minority too. A real small minority. Even smaller than our minority. But I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about the reality that if most of the listeners to this program walk into a Christian bookstore and pick up a book... A commentary on the New Testament and look these texts up, they're going to be shocked. Because the majority of commentaries are not written by people who actually believe the Bible's consistent with itself. Wasn't even talking about you. It was one of those things where I'm like, oh, man. Uh, do you Do you see people criticizing you in every single thing they say? Come on. Wow. That was, that was really disappointing. And you know what I'm disappointed is because I like Chris. And he does a lot of good work in other areas. I confess that the more I hear, the more it seems to me that this particular area is fundamentally impacting every other area in a negative fashion. He says he wants to do a PhD. He's trying to survive Fuller. I mean, surviving Fuller is tough enough as it is. Uh, I survived it in the 80s. I can't imagine what it's like to survive it now. Um, But he wants to do a PhD in Old Testament studies. But it sounds like he wants to do a PhD in Old Testament studies in this area. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I, if I, if he had asked me, Years and years ago, my statement would have been, well, I can't stop you. But in my experience, and nothing has changed over the past 10, 15 years, in my experience, people who start down this road generally don't find a whole lot of stopping places along the way before they get into some real serious liberalism. Um, But there you go. But so so some of my disappointment was just like just because I would expect more. Um, you know, don't don't tell people that I believe that unregenerate been given generally. and 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 recognize that when I'm talking about the fact that most New Testament scholarship is conditionalistic, it's it's because they have a low view of Scripture. I wasn't even talking about you. You say I have a high. View. Fine, great, wonderful. That means we can have a different kind of argument, but it doesn't change the reality that you're an even smaller minority than we are. And that's clearly what I was talking about. And I don't know how you can't see that. Um, But it does demonstrate that this subject, um, I could be in the majority if I wanted to. I could have a bigger seat at the table if I held a different perspective. Um, And I do differentiate between this subject and, for example, anything Trinitarian... Um. obviously there have, again you go back into church history and there have been all sorts of different perspectives on this subject and just because one became predominant in the medieval period doesn't mean anything to me because there was a lot of stuff that became predominant in the medieval period that I don't believe or accept myself so Why then don't I just go the easy route? Well, because I don't see a consistency. And in fact, one of the things that struck me as I listened to the response was how many times Chris had to say things like, well, we don't get into that here in our group. We don't take a stand on this in our group. I'm not sure how that works. He does apologetics. Um, How do you? not take a stand on some of those now some of it just may be well there are so few of us that are really interested in the subject that we have to avoid getting into topics that would result in us all well i guess i can't condemn each other to help <laughs> condemn each other to annihilation or something um but we have to avoid the subjects that would get us divided up even into smaller groups than we are Maybe that's the case, or maybe, as some people have told me, there are questions about Jesus' continued conscious existence after death, and that ends up impacting issues of incarnation. And I'd be really leery about a lot of that stuff, and I'd be really interested in in whether that what I've been told is is true about that kind of stuff. Um. But it did strike me that there were a lot of key issues. It was like, well, you know, some people say this. And I get that. These are not the topics we talk about most. A lot of people in this audience, they've heard me talk about the subject of grieving. And one of the things I say when I talk about the grieving book that I wrote is we as Christians really stink at talking about death. But you know what? Most Americans do. It's, it, that's more of a modernistic type thing. There was much more discussion about it in the past. That doesn't mean it was critical thought. Um, there was a lot of traditional thought. I, it's, it struck me over the years, doing a little church history here, it struck me over the years that there's a great video, and those of you, you know, who are like Algo, you've heard me mention this a thousand times before. We always have new listeners. Um, there's a great video on Martin Luther. It's the BBC version called Martin Luther Heretic. It's shorter than the full uh, Jonathan Farnes. Was it Jonathan Farnes? No, or was that the one that was BBC? I'm horrible with actors. Um, and which one was which? I think Jonathan Farnes was in the BBC one. Anyway, it's called Martin Luther Heretic. It's my favorite. Um, and one of the things that it really brings home right toward the beginning in the formation of Luther's entire psyche is the centrality of death and the nearness of death. Remember the the, the thunderstorm incident? Um, when you live with the reality and it sort of has some small connection though the numbers aren't the same, some small connection to what we've been experiencing recently. There are... I, ha, I know people who are living in mortal fear of their lives. They are panicked. They really think the zombie apocalypse has arrived. And when you have that fear of death, you will... Your mind will constantly be dwelling upon... The afterlife. Now, what's weird in our day, it's not quite the same because Luther was facing plague and death and war from a supernaturalistic worldview. But when you approach these things from a naturalistic worldview, the results are going to be different. You will still think about death, but there's this big blank spot afterwards. Meaninglessness, nihilism becomes the real issue at that point. But the reason that men responded to justification by faith was because they recognized how close, how mortal they were, how this physical life would soon be over and could be over very soon as in today, tomorrow, the next day, everybody had seen a dead body in the streets. Everybody had seen dead children. Everybody had seen starvation, plague, war. It was all around them. Makes you much more serious about thinking about the nature of mankind. And so, sure, There was a lot of discussion about these things, but traditional understandings, that doesn't make them right. We have to back up what what we believe. There has to be serious thought. But this, more than almost any other subject, requires us to bring into our thinking multiple threads of biblical reality and biblical truth so what is god seeking to accomplish what is the nature of man what is the nature of justice why does why does the bible talk about punishment and is that punishment simply annihilation is it simply cessation of existence is there is there a correspondence when when we talk about the death that christ died what is the nature of the substitutionary element of that Is it necessary that Christ be the God-man for his death to be propitiatory for many people, all who are united with him? And what is the relationship of the nature of his person to the atonement that is offered? And again, church history... important to understand here but it's insufficient to give us an answer it helps us to evaluate our answers and we we cheapen the answer we give if we are not aware of the answers that have been offered in the past so what have you heard me saying in the ken wilson stuff recently what have i said a number of times in the background information there wasn't a major treatise on the subject of atonement until the fourth century. So that was not where the focus of their attention was. When you have early writers who address the subject because they are forced to by something outside, because the consistency of Christian revelation has not been. Worked through, and we don't have the, the the shoulders of giants stand on. People come up with some really weird stuff. So, for example, I was going to spend some time today. I'm not going to now, obviously. I was going to spend some time talking a little bit about. I was studying today. Spent hours this morning studying for future programs. That's what I've been doing. Um, while trimming a tree, <laughs> and while doing a two mile walk. And what I was uh, studying is Gnosticism. Now, I've studied Gnosticism for years, but generally my interest would finally end once it started getting to the level of all the names that Gnosticism uses. Because there are so many names, and one writer would use one name and another writer would use another name for the same figure or concept most of them are Greek names, sometimes Coptic, sometimes Egyptian, depends on who you're reading, but um, and and the categories of existence, it's, it is absurdly complicated. Absurdly complicated. Let me just, just tell you one thing this morning. Um, if you know about Gnosticism, you know about the Demiurge, right? I've told you about the You've heard me talk about the Demiurge. I only have an audience of one and he sometimes goes catatonic. So um, the um, the demiurge is the creator of the physical universe. So Yahweh, the creator god of Genesis, to the Gnostics was not only a lower form of divine being, but a deceived, depraved, arrogant form of divine being who actually proclaimed himself to be the only true God Gnosticism is without a doubt the most wicked demonic religion I've ever encountered it, is, it knows the scriptures and intentionally seeks to pervert them this wasn't just some sort of innocent these we, we have the idea here in Arizona we're not far from a city called Sedona And Sedona, the the, the Sedona area is one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's It's the Grand Canyon upside down. It really is beautiful. But it is inhabited by wackos. Just complete, total wackos. Remember the Harmonic Convergence? What year was that, 2005? For some reason, 2005 comes up in my mind. Everybody was talking about the Harmonic Convergence. Which was supposed to be focused in Prescott, Arizona, and so you go driving through Prescott today. If if you need any crystals, what? What did I say? Prescott? Oh, I'm sorry. Sedona. Prescott. I'm like, no, we do that. <laughs> that's where that's where Rich was born. Sedona. You can get to Sedona through Prescott. You just have to go over Mingus Mountain. So anyway. Uh, Northern Arizona, Sedona is the place to go. You want to get all the crystals, you want, and and all the rest of that. Stuff. We tend to think of Gnosticism like that because you hear all the Gnostic stuff, and you go, nineteen sixties hippies who had way too much cannabis and fried their brains, but still live in Sedona. That's that's what, no, that's not what Gnosticism was. Gnosticism was far. Gnosticism was simply demonic. And so you can't you can't use the term demonic in most church history classes, or at least in most history classes. You're you're not allowed to no, you're not allowed to say things like that. But for a believer, you look at what Gnosticism taught, it's demonic. It is it is devilish, satanic to its core. Because the one true God that the New Testament belabors the fact. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. This is fundamental to the New Testament teaching. That is fundamentally denied. And the God who created this world is an arrogant, stupid uh, creature who and I was doing some more reading on it so I'm I'm just going to give you what I understand right now. I've talked to you about the eons that How did I get into this? I wasn't going to spend as much time, but this is the problem. You can't even talk about a little part of it and make it understandable without fitting it into this massively complicated cosmogony. This whole story of where, how everything came into existence and, and all the rest of this stuff, but the one true God who isn't a God like we conceive of a God. This is the true, the true light that, who has just been at peace in eternity but is not the creator of all things and is not the self-sufficient source of its own existence or personal, self glorified none of these things. But this pure God emanates thoughts, states of thought, and these emanations can then interact with one another we automatically think of these as persons creatures there's an element of that but then there's not an element of that these are the eons that come forth from the one god uh which is not monotheism But any no one no it's not monotheism by any stretch of the imagination um but they come forth. One of the last emanations is Sophia. Now, what does Sophia mean? Sophia means wisdom. Feminine. Um, and, you know, different systems had different numbers. There's 12, and then there's a second 12. And, but the, it all, all depends on who you're talking to. I'm going to get back to Irenaeus here in a second. Um, each one has a pair so it's a male female pair and that creates harmony and balance harmony and balance big thing big thing gotta have harmony and balance well Sophia contemplates the source without consulting her consort and becomes so excited in her contemplation of the one true source that she brings forth a misformed thought that is a being. And she's embarrassed that the other eons will find out that she's done this because she shouldn't have done it separately from her... There is disharmony, see. And so... She basically thrusts this thing out of the Pleroma, the fullness. And somehow, and I haven't quite figured out exactly how this works or if it's just a matter of differing views because there there were Valentinian spins and if you get down toward Egypt, then it has another spin and, and just tremendously complex. Um, from this divine but misshapen creature that is removed by Sophia from the Pleroma somehow that either becomes or gives birth to the god of this world called a number of different names within Gnosticism but attached to the name Jehovah. That's where Jehovah comes from, in Gnosticism. And hence, there's this really complicated, just as there is in Manichaeism, there's this really complicated mythology about how mankind becomes created and how the eons get involved so there is this the dual nature of man. The spiritual nature and the fleshly nature and there's rape involved and then again there is a Manichaeism too so yeah okay um, it, it it gets incredibly incredibly complex just wild but the, the whole idea is disharmony between what we would call attributes of the one God and interesting enough it's wisdom Sophia that is responsible now she is sort of like redeemed and you know, once it becomes known what she did amongst the Eons, she's brought back in, and everybody's cool. And yeah, you know, if you can describe it that way. Um, but it was wisdom, Sophia, that was the one that started the path toward the creation of this. She experienced confusion and something else. I was just reading it. I was actually going to have a little story time with Jimmy today. But I just decided I, I didn't want to put you all through it. Because this is, takes us back to where we were. Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Um, up until we discovered the Nag Hammadi Library um, in the last century, um, we were almost completely dependent upon Irenaeus's description of Gnosticism to understand what the system was. His book Against Heresies starts off with an entire section. If, if you want to, if you're sitting there going, that guy is just so stupid he can't explain this to us. Here's what you need to do. Go online, look up Against Heresies by Irenaeus, read book one, chapter one and following. And he will lay out Gnosticism for you. And I just go, okay, you try to summarize that in less than 10 minutes. (laughs) Good luck. Ain't going to happen. It's amazing. Go online. Look up Gnostic eons. Hit graphics. Be careful about that. Hope your filter's on. Um, But you'll see the same thing. Even the graphics trying to show the relationship of the eons to each other and the dodeca and the deca and and it's really 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 complicated so i i guess mentioning irenaeus is what got me off on this tangent because i can really appreciate the fact that irenaeus did a really good job describing gnosticism he did his homework now scholars would say well now that we have the Nagamati, he wasn't exactly right about this he went, Look, given that he's in Gaul, he's in France. This isn't exactly the hometown of Gnosticism. um He did a really good job in laying out what the problems were and what the errors were and and it's quite in depth. uh He did a much better job than a lot of people credit him. um In fact, we were able to recognize. What was in the Nagamiah library, because we had Irenaeus? We're like, "Oh, did you know, remember in 2006 when the Gospel of um, Judas came out? Remember there was all the big discussion about the gospel of Judas, and it was you know more of it has come out since then, and it's it's a weird. I mean it is it, guess who we we knew it existed. You know how we knew Irenaeus described it. That's how we knew we had it is Irenaeus had done that good of a job. So I can really appreciate an Irenaeus, but his doctrine of the atonement was totally whacked. It really was. It was called the recapitulation theory. I've told you about it before, but I've told you about it in another context. The recapitulation theory was that Jesus had to live through all the ages of man to redeem all the ages of man. So that's why Irenaeus is the first one to use the phrase apostolic tradition. That he had an apostolic tradition that had been passed down from the apostles that Jesus was more than 50 years old when he died. Now, nobody today believes that, but that's the earliest reference to apostolic tradition in the patristic sources. So, I can read against heresies and really appreciate... What work went into that? But I always have to keep in mind, Irenaeus, his doctrine of atonement, was not biblical. He thought it was. And we, we we can't know exactly what canon of scripture he necessarily had. I mean, I'm sure someone's written a study of it. But did were certain books of scripture only recently available in his area or known to be scripture? You know, I, I try to have as broad a extension of grace as I possibly can in those first years, in those first centuries, because I know how dependent I am, and you are, on those who came before us. We have inherited a fully developed theological language. You didn't know that. No one, no one walked up to you. Let's say you walked an aisle in a Baptist church. Nobody walked up to you and handed you the theological lingo book. But you picked it up fast. You picked it up fast. It was picked up in the conversations going on in, in Sunday school, and it's picked up in the services, and it's picked up from music, our hymns. Man, there's a lot of theology in those things. And you learn the language. Well, that took a long time to develop. We've had an advantage that those early church fathers did not have. And so I can appreciate Irenaeus while going, yeah, but his doctrine. Now, he didn't know what I know about some of the backgrounds and and, and didn't have the commentaries and he took over the group there in Lyon because the previous bishop was killed. There had been bad persecution and we don't know when he died because he probably died in persecution too. So give, cut the guy a break basically is what I'm saying. Um, Don't judge him on standards that he didn't have. Okay. But that also means I have to go. Yeah okay, I I hear what what he's saying on this, that, or the other thing. That's why we have to be so careful in how we handle the early church fathers. Let's tie this this together, because um, I do intend to wrap this program up, because this may have been the most meandering discussion we've ever, ever had. Um, But the end of five... Uh, consecutive dividing lines. I can meander a little bit. I hope you don't mind. Um, what? Well, I am. <laughs> yeah, it is hard to we the, the subjects that we're addressing today are somewhat complex. Not just Gnosticism, but dealing with eschatology and punishment. And the point is this. We need to have an eschatology and a concept of the judgment that takes into consideration a whole lot more than just simply a few proof texts on... Let's let's put it this way. I think the meaning of Basanismos is important. I think that the parallel of Matthew 25-46 is important. Yes, Chris, I listened to what you said. And... It was very unconvincing to me. But um, the point is, I heard it, and I can see why you're extremely concerned about that particular text. Um, But what I'm saying to people on my side is, for most of us, we have held to a position, and we don't know why we hold to it. It's tradition. And let's just put it this way. Um people like Chris Date challenge us to know why we believe on the subject. And I'll tell you one thing, most people haven't responded to him overly well. There are some people out there, but this is just the subject people don't want to talk about. And the reason I haven't adopted that perspective is because I see it to be in conflict. And see, Chris says, and this is why I believe it the way that I believe it, in his particular view. Fine, great. I'm glad that th- that's what you think. But issues of justice, anthropology, atonement, are generally not the context in which our eschatology has been formed. You see, where this was all coming to this. this you want to hear what the 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 end of the week exhortation is here. We have spent a lot of time this week in historiography, being fair to early church fathers, recognizing the abuse of early church fathers, and all the rest of that stuff. Okay? Theologically, the challenge for us is that We need to be honest when there are parts of our theology that are basically unformed because we have not wrestled with what are the real constituent factors of that theology. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you have simply adopted a traditional understanding in any area without seeing what the foundations are and the consistency of those foundations, that's going to be a weakness for you. And in my experience, once somebody pushes upon an area of our theology that we have formed out of tradition we tend to respond with emotion first and foremost because we know that we have a weakness there. And we know that if you push us too far, there's nothing. I got no place left to go. I've never really thought through what this is all about. And so, we want to have a consistent theology. Why am I I even investing my time? Other than the cool, enjoyable thing about getting to teach church history on the dividing line to a depth that at least some of you appreciate. Some others maybe have just tuned us out. I don't know. But why respond to things? Because we're being told by Ken Wilson and Layton Flowers and these people that the deepest central insight of Reformed theology, which is that God is God and we are not, that God is absolutely sovereign, that his self-glorification is sufficient reason for all of creation and redemption, that he is the creator of all things, that he has the right to decree the very fabric of time. And then, and then, amazingly, he enters into the fabric of time as a part of his decree. Something no Manichaean, Gnostic, or Stoic could have ever dreamed of. But anyway, we're being told that that central, beautiful reality that changes everything. And you in the audience, you know what I'm talking about. You know what it was like to all of a sudden realize God is really God. And he has the right to do with his creation as he sees fit to his glory. And the amazing thing is, He's chosen to enter into his own creation and join a people to himself. That central reality, we're being told, is actually a straight line borrowing from Stoicism, Gnosticism, and Manichaeism. So, I know that's not true. I know that's patently absurd. But I'm seeing people being influenced by that because it comes from two directions. It is natural for man to put himself in the center. It is natural for man to decentralize God's intentions and, and, and go with the man-centeredness on the theology side and then join that with a with the simple reality that the man in the pew in the world today has no idea what manichaeism was, what gnosticism was, what the stoics believed and therefore someone comes along and says believe me, here's some quotes you put the two together And it becomes a very noxious fume. And I'm just turning the fan on to blow it out the windows. That's all. But I think it's an important thing to do. In the process, hopefully edify a whole bunch of folks and teach you and, and by example to be able to read Irenaeus against heresies and go... Man, this guy put a lot of work into this. And isn't it amazing? It's something written this long ago. We can still read it. And he was really concerned about apologetics in his, his day. And man, his stuff is really twisted by liberals and things like that today. And he's attacked and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, when you then read someplace else, and all of a sudden he says something weird about recapitulation and stuff like that, you don't just automatically go, ah, Burn! burn him, burn his works, heretic. No, you go, well, he's alive in the second century and man, I've got access to a whole lot more. And isn't it, isn't it wonderful that God has not left us to our own devices and, and there has been people who've been able to work through these things and we can, we can use the language we've developed to understand these things. And So instead of it being a I'm going to exercise judgment and get the flamethrower out and identify Irenaeus as a heretic because he had a different view than I do, though he wouldn't have known what your view was. So that's the point. You see, um, I can be really thankful for even people who had different views than I did in the past. I think that involves maturity and growth and that's what we need in our day. And while we still have the freedom to be doing this, while we still have this program, and we haven't been shut down by the bots yet, um, for not bowing to Big Brother and Big Brother's definition of truth, and we need to do what we can do. So we're just making our little contribution toward uh, getting everything the way it needs to go. Did I forget anything here? D looking at... Yeah, I I still got I've still got topics for next week and something might happen between now and next week. <laughs> you think? It's possible. Uh it, it it's it's very very possible. So, there you go. Um something tells me there be a response to that too, but um we we will prioritize things based upon the moments of teachability that they offer and uh, and what's going on and and our role. So that this makes 9 hours this week we've been together on the dividing line if you've watched or listened to nine hours this week what is wrong with you (laughs) i ain't going back and listening to it that's for sure but hopefully if you have you've had to poor, yeah poor rich has had to listen to all of it well at least he got distracted a few times had a few phone calls and stuff like that so didn't have to suffer through all of it but don't forget on monday we've got milo hotzenbuehler And you'll not want to miss that. Thanks for watching. We'll see you, Lord willing, on Monday. God bless.